It's great to be with you today. If you are new to our faith family, one thing, one unique aspect of who we are as a church in this city is that we are one church who seeks to express the grace of Jesus in three locations. So we have a gathering here in our Wallingford expression, and then we also have an expression in Edmonds, and then our expression over in West Seattle. And our desire as a people is to discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And as we discover that difference, we want to, to, to display that difference for all to see. And one of the ways that we do so is by opening up our Bibles together on a weekly basis and reading them and studying them and seeking to hear the voice of God, drawing our attention to the beauty of the gospel found in its pages. Now, the gospel is shorthand. It's a shorthand reference to the story of Jesus. The word literally means good news, and it reminds us that of the good news, the good story of Jesus coming into the world and living the life that you and I could not live and dying the death that you and I deserved to die as a result of our sin and yet rising from the grave to conquer sin, Satan, and death, that with his coming into the world, he secured salvation for sinners and sufferers like you and me. But the good news of the gospel continues as we consider how Jesus is at work in the world to harmonize heaven and earth, to manifest his graceful rule in our lives as a people following him together. And so we live by faith in the here and now, moving towards the moment when King Jesus returns. And when he returns, he will not come to secure our salvation. He's coming to settle our salvation once and for all. He's going to wipe the slate clean of everything that makes life miserable in the here and now. He's going to renew heaven and earth, harmonizing it together in ultimate grace-filled perfection. There's coming a day when there's no more COVID. There's coming a day when there's no more winter weather systems that flood basements and cause stress for households all over this city. There's coming a day when oppression and injustice and all of those dynamics are done away with. There is coming a day when all is made well. And so we look forward to that as we live by faith together. Now, I have the privilege of serving as uh, the lead pastor of our church. And my name is Andrew, if I haven't told you already. And a primary responsibility of mine is to preach and to teach uh, the word, is to oversee the preaching and teaching ministry of our church. Now, being one church in three expressions, we sometimes, due to circumstances or need, we sometimes stream this portion of our gathering to another expression, specifically our West Seattle expression who gathers at this same time. And they are tuning in this morning, joining us for the study of God's word. And it's great to be with you in this capacity today. And Know that Mark Smith, our West Seattle expression pastor, he's under the weather, but he's expected to bounce back real soon. And so in light of that, no matter where you are located, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Luke chapter 2. Find your way to Luke chapter 2 where we are examining a significant snapshot from the early life of Jesus. Now, there are four accounts of Jesus' time on earth in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of all the four Gospels, Luke devotes the most attention to Jesus' early life. Specifically, he gives us more details uh, concerning his birth, his entry point into the world. But you fast forward after Jesus is born about 12 years and we are brought into this significant occurrence that happened when Jesus was 12 years old and it has uh, some stuff for us to consider this morning. Look at verse 41 as we 
read this text. Beginning of verse 41, every year Jesus' parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it, assuming he was in the traveling party. They went a day's journey. Now, this reminds me of that scene from Home Alone when the McAllister family is getting everybody together to go on their vacation to Paris. And there's so many of them, all the cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. They're trying to jump into all these the couple of vans that will take them to the airport. It's a chaotic and confusing scene. No wonder little Kevin was left behind. No wonder the premise of the movie set out for him to be home alone. It, this scene kind of reminds me of that. But understand that in Home Alone, leaving Kevin behind was an accident. <laughs> But there's no hint of this being an accident in Luke chapter 2. It says that the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now there's a subtle note of providence being struck in that phrase. Jesus wasn't left. He stayed. See, Jesus' life and ministry is never subject to chance. It's never subject to accidents. Jesus' life and ministry was lived constantly in compliance with the providence of his heavenly father. He only said and did what he heard his father saying and doing. He lived in constant communion with his heavenly father. And so he stays behind for a reason that we're going to see here in a moment. It says, then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked them, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus, key phrase, increased. Jesus grew. It says he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Now that's a remarkable thing to consider that the God-man increased. That the God-man grew up. And he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. You see, when God took on flesh, when Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary in the tiny town of Bethlehem, God was, in a sense, subjecting himself to the developmental processes that correspond with being human. That he was stepping into our shoes and experiencing life the way you and I experience life. That means for nine months, Jesus grew as a fetus in Mary's womb. This means when Jesus was born into the world, he was utterly dependent upon his mother for nutrition and nourishment. This means that he soon, over time, started to gain weight and the muscles in his neck began to strengthen so that he could lift his little head. And, and it, you can imagine baby Jesus kind of pushing himself up and learning to roll over as he increased in stature. And then you can think about Jesus actually pushing himself up to a crawl and eventually getting his little body to move across the floor. 
And then perhaps you can imagine Jesus grabbing hold of the, of the coffee table that was fashioned by his woodworking father and pulling himself up and standing on his feet for the first time. And maybe he let go of the table only to stumble and to fall on his bottom. But Jesus would not be denied just like you weren't denied. And he would try it again and again and again until eventually Jesus found his balance and he could take some steps and walk across the room as he increased in stature. He began to learn as he listened to his mom and his dad speak the Aramaic language that was common in the first century Galilean world. And he began to hear them and he would imitate them, developing the ability to speak himself. And so with each passing year, Jesus got a little taller. Jesus got a little stronger. He became more proficient in speech and he learned more about his ancestry and his heritage as a Jewish, as a young Jewish man. Now to be clear, to talk about Jesus increasing in these ways, growing up, this does not mean that Jesus, during those moments of development, it does not mean that Jesus ceased being fully divine, that he ceased being fully God. This is one of the mysterious elements of what's called the incarnation of God becoming human, taking on flesh. But it is one that is spoken clearly of in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told that though Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. That means he did not consider equality with God as something to be taken advantage of. This means that Jesus lived a fully human life. He did not tap into his divine nature to get a leg up on his circumstances. He did not tap up, tap into his divine nature to resist temptation. He lived a fully human life just like you and I, yet he was able to do it without sin. Because as Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, we're told he also grew in grace. He grew in favor with God and with people. And so Jesus would empty himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And so what we see when we consider Jesus increasing in these ways, we're seeing Jesus growing in grace, growing in favor. He grew in a grace-filled relationship with his heavenly father. And he grew in a grace-filled relationship with the people who surrounded him. So healthy and holy and humble relationships just marked out his life. And so what I want us to do this morning is we consider this snapshot from Jesus' early life. That this snapshot accentuates how Jesus developed. And by doing so, kind of shows you and I how we too can develop. How you and I might grow in grace. We don't want to just grow physically. We don't want to just grow mentally. We want to grow spiritually. We want to grow in the favor, the goodness, the grace that God has poured into our lives through the gospel. And so if we're going to grow in grace, I just want to point out three things that we see in this text. And that's the importance, that, uh, the important role that rhythms, curiosity, and obedience plays in our development as we mature in our faith, as we grow in grace. First, let's think about the role of rhythms. If you look at the story, we're told that, that Mary and Joseph, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, which was a custom for them. It's something they did every year. And at this point in time, Jesus is 12 years old. 
Now, in the Jewish culture, the transition from age 12 to 13 was monumental. When a boy turned 13, he was no longer viewed as a child. He was now seen and treated like a young man. And as a 13-year-old young man, he was then responsible for taking his place amongst the people of God. That he would now take primary responsibility for being a part of everything that God was doing in and among his people. And so the transition from 12 to 13 kind of represented that. We, have, we know of Jewish practices today that continue known as bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the covenant. And it is a ceremony that is designed to, to showcase this transition from being 12 to 13, from being a child to a young man, from being someone who's dependent upon his parents for his spiritual development to now becoming one who is owning that development himself. And so the bar mitzvah tradition just kind of extends and accentuates this dynamic. But before the age of 13... It was common for uh, dads primarily to take responsibility for this development in the life of their sons. And so Joseph would have been responsible and held accountable to bring Jesus along when they would make this trip every year. And Joseph would be the one to explain everything that Jesus was seeing and sensing in the city as the city was filled with people there to celebrate Passover. Joseph would do the things that he as a father was responsible to do. Mary would do the things that she as a mother was responsible to do because a parent's primary responsibility is to help children grow in grace, is to help little ones grow and develop in relationship with God and relationship with their fellow human beings. This was their primary responsibility then and it continues to be the primary responsibility of, of parents and guardians today. Deuteronomy 6 would tell us, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Tell them these things. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Joseph and Mary committed to a rhythm of life that would do just that for little Jesus. Because noted in this story is that every year they would make this trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. They wouldn't miss this moment for the world. As they, and as you can imagine, as they walked along the road and they made this three-day trek to the city of Jerusalem, that, that what occupied their time and attention was the story of God. As they would repeat the word of God and rehearse the story of God, they would talk about creation they would talk about human corruption. They would talk about the covenant God made with Abraham. They would talk about God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery. They would talk about the law being given to Israel at Mount Sinai. They would talk about the promised land that the Lord would lead his people into. They would talk about the Psalms that David wrote and the Proverbs, the words of wisdom that Solomon and others penned. They would talk about the promises of salvation and judgment that are littered throughout the prophets. They would rehearse these, these dynamics over and over and over again as they walked along the road to Jerusalem. That the sweeping story of God would occupy this family as they caravaned and traveled to the city. Now the Passover festival was one of three major Jewish festivals that Israel celebrated back in the day. 
It was one that all devout men and women like Joseph and Mary were expected and, and would willingly travel to participate in and to celebrate. And so the city of Jerusalem, their population would explode. Their population would increase tenfold what it normally was during this time each year. You can imagine it sort of being like uh, New Orleans at Mardi Gras or Times Square on New Year's Eve, only not as much drunkenness and strangers kissing each other. That sort of thing wasn't happening at this festival. But people flocked from all over to commemorate and to celebrate the Passover, the moment when God delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery. Passover was a reference to that evening when judgment came upon the land of Egypt. But before judgment fell upon the land of Egypt, the Lord told his people to take a special lamb, an unblemished lamb, and to offer it up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And then they were instructed by God to take its blood and to smear it on the doorpost so that when judgment would fall upon Egypt in that, that evening, any time the Lord came to a household where the blood of the lamb was applied, it would pass over them. And judgment wouldn't hit them. Judgment wouldn't fall. This was the event that was being celebrated and commemorated in Jerusalem. Now, the other two festivals that would increase the population like this were called Pentecost and Tabernacles. And all three of these festivals were associated with the events of the book of Exodus. So if you want to read uh, an Old Testament book that's incredibly important to your understanding of the gospel, read the book of Exodus. It is crucial to our understanding of Jesus. And so what I want you to think about is how Jesus grew up making this trip and attending this festival every year. And he would witness all these people bringing their lambs, bringing their goats, bringing their doves as offerings to God. And his father, Joseph, would kneel beside him as he was seeing and sensing all of these things taking place and explain to him its significance, drawing his attention to all that God did for his people and that all that God promised to do for his people. You see, this annual rhythm would shape Jesus' self-understanding. This annual rhythm would inform the role that Jesus would play in the story of God because one day this 12-year-old boy would grow up and this 12-year-old boy would become a man who offers his life up as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That he would become the perfect embodiment of everything he sees at the Passover festival as a child. So that everyone who would trust in this Jesus and would trust in his blood shed for our forgiveness and we apply it to our lives by faith, what happens? Well, judgment passes over us passes over us because it fell on Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. So what I want you to think about is how we must not underestimate the shaping power of our rhythms, the shaping power of our customs, because our rhythms, our customs, our way of life will determine who we see ourselves become. And they will shape us for better or for worse. If you are someone who's responsible for little ones and seeing them grow and develop, do you understand that whatever rhythms you're putting before your little ones, those rhythms will shape who they become and who they see themselves being in the world that is for better or for worse. And so what we want to do is cultivate gospel-oriented rhythms that are necessary for us to grow in grace, but the types of rhythms that are necessary for our little ones to grow in grace as well. 
so that they could grow in their understanding of who God created them to be. That they might grow in their understanding of what Christ did for them through his death and his resurrection and become the lovers of God and the lovers of people God intends for them to be. And so let me ask you, is there a rhythm to your relationship with Jesus? Is there a custom to your walk with Christ? You might think of this on the daily basis. Is there a daily rhythm to your life of faith? Do you spend time with Jesus daily? Do you open up the word and listen to God's voice? Do you pray and talk to him daily, regularly? Is there a rhythm, a daily rhythm to your walk with Christ? But then I also want to ask you if there's a weekly rhythm to your walk with Christ. Is there a weekly rhythm to your walk with Jesus? So are you prioritizing Hebrews 10.25 that tells Christians who are having a hard time gathering together because it was far more difficult to do so then than it is for us now in the middle of a pandemic and yet they were still told do not forsake the gathering of the assembly. Do not not forsake gathering with other followers of Jesus to rehearse the story of God and to sing and celebrate the gospel. Prioritize it. Make it a weekly rhythm in your life. You might want to think about a monthly dynamic. Is there a monthly rhythm to your walk with Christ? I'm reminded of a family in our church who on a monthly basis, they load up the car, mom, dad, all the little ones, and they go and they serve food from a food bank. And the little ones are seeing mom and dad care for people who are having a hard time. You can't underestimate the impact and the impression that that is making on their lives and how they see the world and how they respond to human need. But then we also want to think about, is there an annual rhythm to our walk with Christ? You know, the the flow of the church over the course of a year, there's moments that come around annually for us to commemorate together and to celebrate together. We just experienced one of those in Advent The Advent season is an annual reminder that Christ came. And so we commemorate that and we celebrate that. Pretty soon we will get into Passion Week. And we'll focus on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. These annual moments where we come together and and think deeply about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. These annual rhythms, are they prioritized in your relationship with Jesus? Are you cultivating gospel-oriented rhythms in your life of faith? Or are you too easily knocked out of rhythm? You know, sometimes it's kind of like clapping in our church. You know, some people might be on bass. Some people aren't in rhythm. And you hear that one offbeat and all of a sudden everybody's offbeat. And you don't know what happened. Well, we can be knocked out of rhythm in our walk with Christ as well. And so we have to cultivate, we have to pay attention to our rhythms of life so that we might grow in grace. Secondly... We want to talk about curiosity. You see, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus traveled to Jerusalem again as part of a caravan, which was quite common for people to travel together in larger groups. And usually you would travel not just with your immediate family, but with your extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles. And then also friends would come and you would join together to make a pilgrimage like this. You would travel in a big group and when you did travel in a caravan, you would position yourself strategically. The little ones, the young ones would tend to occupy the middle of the group because they were most protected there, but they could kind of move like kids move all over the place. And then you kind of had the ladies surrounding the young ones as they traveled together. Then you had the men on the outer ring as they would caravan together because the men were expected to protect the group from any robbers or marauders that might fall upon them in a way that is similar to what Jesus talks about in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The men would travel on the outside to kind of protect the caravan and to keep things clean. And they would travel together in these large groups. 
Now, when the festival was over and it was time for this caravan, this large group of people to return to Nazareth, everybody packed up. They got ready to go, including Joseph and Mary. But Joseph and Mary assumed Jesus was in the group, that he was there. And there's so many people, like the McAllisters at Christmas time. They just assumed he was going to be present among them. But after traveling for a day, they realized Jesus is nowhere to be found, that he's missing from the group. Now, let's be gracious to Joseph and Mary. This doesn't make them bad parents. This makes them real parents, you know, relatable parents. You know, their son's missing in this moment. And so they turn the caravan around and they begin to search frantically amongst everyone there. Then they get back to Jerusalem and they look for three days. For three days, they're looking for Jesus. Can you imagine the anxiety, the distress? the guilt, the shame, the fear they felt when they could not find their son. But eventually they do stumble upon Jesus as he's in the temple and he's talking to the religious leaders. And they find him sitting there listening to what these teachers were saying, asking them questions and engaging in dialogue. You find, they find Jesus exercising his childlike curiosity See, at 12 years old, he stayed behind and chose to hang out with teachers in the temple because he wanted to learn more. He wanted to learn more about who his God, his heavenly father is. He wanted to learn more about what God promised to be and do for the people of Israel because it all concerned him. And being the prodigious child that Jesus was, he displays a level of understanding and insight that just floored everyone, astonishing those much older than him. As he started connecting dots that no one else was connecting, he began to draw conclusions that no one else was drawing. And what was happening as Jesus engaged in this moment is that his self-understanding as the Son of God began to come into focus. And he started to grow in his understanding of who he was before his heavenly Father. And he began to grow in what he would do as the Son of God. So you begin to see Jesus here growing in grace because he's exercising curiosity. Now, when I use the word curiosity, I want to be careful because there is a terrible form of curiosity. There is a type of curiosity that kills the cat, right? This is the type of curiosity that Adam and Eve displayed in the Garden of Eden. They were curious about the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent intercepted their thinking and distorted, deceived them into desiring this fruit telling them that if they ate this fruit, it would make them like God. And so they became curious. They wanted to know what it was like. And so they grabbed hold of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they took a bite, hoping to perhaps own and take control of their lives, hoping to perhaps perhaps exercise independence from God as they would eat from this fruit. But you know that that type of curiosity led to their demise, it led to their death, and it has broken the world. There is a terrible form of curiosity, a curiosity that just seeks control, a curiosity that is seeking after independence, a curiosity that isn't subject to the authority of God and the will of God and the wonder of God and the will and the ways of God. What you have, what you have displayed in Jesus' life is what I might call a gospel-oriented curiosity, The type of curiosity that leads to life. The type of curiosity that would align his self-understanding up with the will of God. 
The type of curiosity that wouldn't lead him to operate independently from his heavenly father, but the type of curiosity that would drive him into dependence. The type of curiosity that would lead him to show love to God and love for God by following him all the days of his life. You see, the curiosity that Jesus displays in the temple is the type of curiosity we need to cultivate in our walk with Jesus. You see, being disciples or followers of Jesus, that means that we are fundamentally learners. That we are people who are learning the way of Jesus. And you cannot learn the way of Jesus without exercising curiosity. Asking questions, seeking answers. Engaging in dialogue that can sharpen you and bring your self-understanding as a child of God into focus. And that can help you find tangible and practical ways to align your life up with the plans and the purposes of God for your life. And so we want to cultivate this type of curiosity. The type of curiosity that drives us deep into self-understanding as being children of God and, and launches us out into the mission of God as we live this life. But one of the challenges for those of you perhaps who have grown up in church and you've been exposed to a lot of Christianity over the years is that over time, your curiosity begins to wane. There's a writer by the name of Ralph B. Smith. He once observed that children ask roughly 125 questions per day. I think Asher triples that. He's constantly asking questions. But he says adults, adults tend to only ask about six questions a day. So between childhood and adulthood, we lose 119 questions. Our curiosity begins to wane. But I want you to think about this childlike curiosity. Why are kids so curious? Why has God instilled within them such curiosity? Well, God put this within them, I believe, so that they might learn more about the world God created and then find the God who wants to be discovered. Gospel-oriented curiosity leads one into the discovery of God. This is what children display with all their questions and their curiosity. This is what you and I need to recapture so that we live with a childlike faith, exercising a childlike curiosity, wanting to know about the world God created so that knowing about the world God created can lead us to the one who created it. This is the curiosity we want to cultivate. So I want to encourage you to stay curious, Christian. Ask questions, seek answers, and then align your life up with that which you learn. Don't be the type of Christian who grows in their head so they become bobblehead Christians. Be the type of Christian who grows in their hearts where all the things that you're learning is dropping into your heart and conforming you more into the image of Christ, conforming you more into the man and the woman that God created you to be. Now, one of the ways we want to cultivate a gospel-oriented curiosity in our church is this year is we want to launch what's called the Gospel Clarity Institute. The Gospel Clarity Institute is going to become the branding and sort of the design behind uh, our desire to beef up the educational initiatives of our church. We want to provide spaces and places for people to step in and to learn and to develop their understanding of the will and the ways and the wonder of God. And so the Gospel Clarity Institute is in the process of being dreamt up and developed now to, to do just that. So be curious about that in the coming months as those details begin to come into focus. And so growing in grace like Jesus, what we're talking about, developing rhythms, developing curiosity, 
And lastly, if we're going to grow in grace, we want to cultivate a gospel-oriented obedience. And here's where we see this. After finding Jesus in the temple, his parents were astonished. His mother asked, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. They are understandably distressed. They haven't seen their son in four days. And her reaction has caused some students of the Bible to wonder if Jesus sinned in this moment. Did he sin against his parents by staying behind in Jerusalem? Now, one of the things to consider is that a person can be distressed without necessarily being sinned against. You can be distressed by someone's actions without being sinned necessarily by that person's actions. I remember taking my kids to the park when, when they were younger. Asher was three or four years old and I was turned my attention and started watching Delaney just ride on her bike around the park and Asher was hanging out over in, a gla- in, in, a, in the grass and, and I'm focused on Delaney for a few moments but then when I turn, Asher's not there anymore. He noticed as he was sitting there that there were some crows uh, by the fence of the park. And so he got up and he started moving towards the crows. The problem was he continued to chase these crows. And those crows, sinister creatures, they, they took Asher out into the middle of this intersection. And so as a dad, I see my son standing in an intersection of a Seattle street. And I've never ran faster. I mean, I sprinted to my son to grab him and to hold him close. I was distressed in that moment. But Asher didn't necessarily sin against me. He, didn't, he wasn't doing anything that defied me. He wasn't disobeying me in any discernible way. He was being a kid, exploring his curiosity that led him to follow these crows. It's possible to be distressed by someone without necessarily being sinned against by that person. And so Jesus' actions may have distressed mom and dad, but I don't think he sins against them, and here's why. Notice what he says in response. <laughs> He responds, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? A few things to point out here. I believe Jesus is modeling the type of obedience he later expects every one of his followers to model. A few chapters later in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14, there is a large group of people following Jesus. They're all following Jesus and Jesus turns to this crowd and he wants to sift them. Okay, who of you really want to follow me? And which of you are just here because you're going along with the crowd and because you've seen me do some miracles? So he turns to the crowd and this is what he says to them. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that's one of the most alarming things Jesus ever says in the gospel. What we don't want to do is recoil from his words. We don't want to pull back from that. Instead, we want to cultivate a gospel-oriented curiosity. We want to be good disciples that ask the question, why would Jesus say this? Is there an example of this in Jesus' own life? And so we want to engage with some gospel-oriented curiosity, believing and trusting that Jesus knows what's best for us, And that Jesus always wants what's best for us. So rather than recoiling and walking away from Jesus like many in the crowd did in that day, we want to be like Peter. We want to press in. We want to respond the way Peter would respond to Jesus and who said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
I don't have anywhere else to go. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm going to listen to you. And if I don't understand what it is you're saying to me, I'm going to try to figure it out. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to seek answers. Well, here's what Jesus is doing, I believe, in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is getting after a person's priorities. And he's making the point that a person's relationship with him should take precedence over any other relationship in their life, even the best ones. Even the best relationships with your immediate family, with your mom and your dad, with your children, your relationship with Christ must take precedence over every other relationship. And so when we talk about cultivating gospel-oriented rhythms, we're talking about a rhythm of life that's intended to reflect that. A rhythm of life that showcases that Jesus is most important to us. The challenge of that is that sometimes when you live that way, your allegiance to Jesus will be misinterpreted by people who see that happening and they will interpret, it, interpret your actions as hatred. And they will draw conclusions that say, well, that person must not care about me. Or that person must not really love me because you are so devoted to what Jesus is calling you to do that his commands on your life take precedence that others can't understand it. And they're just as confused as Mary and Joseph were confused in this text. And so we want to cultivate gospel-oriented rhythms that show that Jesus, our relationship with him is more important than any other relationship. And what that means is that if any relationship in your life knocks you out of rhythm, you need to readjust. There needs to be a recalibration. I remember when Kim turned up pregnant. We were moving to Seattle 10 years ago to begin the process of starting this church. When she turned up pregnant, there were people in our lives who assumed we would not move. Because who would want to take the grandchild away from their grandparents? Y'all must not love your mom and dad very much. And these questions began to come, and Kim and I had to consider where our priorities fall. In the end, we made a decision to relocate and to plant this church here in Seattle, far removed from our immediate family. And there were some onlookers who interpreted our decision as hatred. But it wasn't hatred. It was love for Jesus. It was obedience to Jesus. It was recognizing that our relationship with Jesus takes precedent over every other relationship in our lives. And so in this passage, Jesus wasn't disobeying his earthly parents. He was obeying his heavenly father. That was his ultimate priority. And one day, Mary and Joseph would realize that. One day, they would get it. They didn't get it here, but they'll get it later. Now, another thing to point out is that these are the first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel. And the first words he speaks, notice how he's talking about God. His self-understanding is growing. He refers to God as his father. Now, this was a radical moment for him to say this to Mary and Joseph because Joseph is there. But Mary knows, and so does Joseph, where Jesus ultimately came from. And so he refers to God as his, as his father. Now, to understand how radically new and fresh that was, you must understand that out of all the 39 books in the Old Testament, God is only referred to as father 14 times. And all 14 times, it's never, he's never referred to as father of an individual. He's referred to as father of creation or he's referred to as father of the people of Israel, but never, it's never used in reference to an individual. Now we are told that God was Abraham's father in the Old Testament, but you never hear Abraham referring to God as father. 
So when Jesus calls God Father here, he was doing something fresh. He was doing something extraordinarily new. He's showcasing a different kind of relationship. And he would do this all the days of his life so that in every prayer that he prays, he addresses God as Father. This was the relationship he shared with God. God was his Father, and that's how he addressed him. The one exception is when Jesus is dying on the cross. And the cry of dereliction or the cry of abandonment, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He doesn't refer to God as Father there for reasons we can talk about on Good Friday, annual rhythm. And so we will get after that then. Now, the gospel refers, references Jesus calling God Father over 60 times. This was who Jesus is. So when we talk about gospel-oriented obedience, we're talking about an obedience that stems from the fact that we are the children of God. This was Jesus' example. I am the Son of God. I will trust him. I am the Son of God. I will obey him. I will do whatever he tells me to do, even if what he tells me to do is to take up a cross and to give up my life. So when we talk about cultivating a gospel-oriented obedience, we're talking about an obedience that stems from who we are as the sons and daughters of God, as those who have been adopted into the family by faith in Jesus. And so we're relating to God, obeying him, not like we relate to and obey a boss. You obey your boss because he's holding a carrot for you. You're trying to earn a paycheck. You don't want to lose your job. You obey God because he loves you. You're not trying to earn anything from him. You're just resting in the fact that he is a father to you and he will be the best father for you. And so anything he tells you to do, you're going to do because you trust him, believing that the father knows best. This is what gospel-oriented obedience is all about, is obeying God, not because we have to, because we're afraid of losing something. We obey God because we want to, because he's given us everything in Christ. And so we obey God as our father, which is what Jesus did. Which is why you want to look at that one word. You might want to circle it. When Jesus uses that word necessary. Even though Jesus related to God as his heavenly father. Jesus did not view obedience as something that was optional. Jesus viewed obedience as that which was necessary. And the question is why? Why is obedience necessary? Now, remember the festival that brought Jesus to Jerusalem in the first place. We're talking about the Passover festival. Now, the climax of this festival occurred when the high priest would bring a, an unblemished lamb and would offer it up as a sacrifice. This sacrifice would be the sacrifice of atonement. It would cover the people's sins. And when that blood would cover the people, judgment would pass over them. That's what all of that represented. Now, there was another person perhaps in the caravan that traveled with the family to Jerusalem. Jesus' cousin, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. It's possible that John and Elizabeth and Zechariah linked up with the caravan and went to Jerusalem too. And John was hearing the same lessons and learning the same, about the same realities that Jesus was learning. So much so that when John the Baptist grew up and Jesus grew up and Jesus steps onto the scene in Galilee, John the Baptist looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he would come to understand that Jesus would be the perfect embodiment of all the sacrifices and all the festivities that were taking place during the Passover festival. 
And the reason Jesus would be the Lamb of God, this unblemished sacrifice, is because he viewed obedience not as optional, but as necessary. And he would trust his Father no matter what. Even to the point when he stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane, he would talk to his Father about what's about to go down. And the shadow of the cross is looming over him, and he prays to his Father. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my... Not my will, but yours be done. Now, the Heavenly Father knew best even then. The Heavenly Father had a plan and a purpose even for that moment, and he did not spare his son from suffering on the cross. Instead, the Father sent his son to suffer on the cross, and Jesus would get up, and he would walk in obedience, obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. And when the Son of God died on that day, he did not die because he sinned in any way. He died because you and I have sinned in just about every way. He died because we do not live in rhythm, in lockstep with the God who made us. He died because we're more curious about our independence than we are about our dependence. He died because of our sins. This is what the Son of God went to the cross to do for us. And in the end, his obedience did not prove optional. His obedience proved necessary. This is what needed to happen for sinners and sufferers like you and me to be rescued, redeemed, saved, forgiven, freed. So that you and I might become the children of God. So that we might relate to God not just as our creator, but we can relate to God as our heavenly father. That's the good news of the gospel. And as the newborn children of God who've put their faith in Jesus, we now grow in the grace that he's given us in Jesus. And we commit to growing in grace by what? Well, by cultivating gospel-oriented rhythms, by aligning our lives with the passions and the priorities and the purposes of God. We grow in grace by cultivating a gospel-oriented curiosity where we're leaning into our dependence upon God. We're learning about the will, the ways, and the wonder of God. And then we cultivate a gospel-oriented obedience. Jesus viewed his obedience not as optional, but as necessary. What does that mean for you and I? If obedience is necessary, how do we handle those moments when we just can't do it? Well, obedience is necessary. But if we're thinking rightly about the gospel, obedience will cease to be optional and it will start being desirable. This is how you know you are a child of God. You want to obey God. You want to relate to him as father. You might not get it right. You might stumble and bumble like a a toddler learning to walk. But God is your father. He's not going to give up on you. He's going to pick you up. He's going to clean you off. He's going to set you on course over and over and over again. So our obedience as children of God isn't optional, it's desirable because of the favor, the grace that God has shown us in and through Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. We pray that your grace would abound as we think through these truths. Would your Holy Spirit help us to apply them to our lives in ways that would make an impact, in ways that will make a difference, all in Jesus' name, amen.